Welcome back to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen, and I am joined, as I always am, by my virtual neighbor, Max. How are you doing on this uh, fine winter morning, my friend? You know, I've had a pretty good last half of the week because I've just been, like, cracking up dying following the uh, Wall Street Melvins versus Reddit GameStoppers uh, matchup that's been going on. Oh, it's been incredible to follow. I... I saw some of it happening. I wish I got in early, but now, like, don't. Whoever, everyone out there is thinking about it, just don't. It's way too volatile right now. But yeah, really well, it's volatile. so fascinating. I was thinking about this last night because most of the time a bubble pops when everyone around in it and outside of it realizes that the value of the bubble is so far past the fundamental value of whatever it's supposed to be representing. So with the 2007-2008 housing crash, people eventually who were like prospective home buyers went and said, wait, you want me to take on how much debt to buy a house? And it was like, no, no, you don't understand. You'll be able to flip the house. And I was like, no, 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 it's not worth the risk for that much debt, however much it is. There was like the fundamental value of the house just eventually was so far outstripped. But with this, this was never about the fundamental value of GameStop. This was about like stonks and memeing and getting back at Wall Street. So the model that you use to predict the bubble popping makes some fundamental assumptions about buyer behavior that are absolutely not going on. I mean, there are a bunch of hedge funds getting in on uh, the side of Reddit to make a profit. Uh, like the other hedge funds expenses so you can predict their behavior rationally but I don't know it's pretty fascinating I am also feeling the regrets that that was like maybe 20 40 bucks the first time I heard of it yeah it happens and uh people were jumping on dogecoin yesterday as a secondary marketplace I think Elon put some money into dogecoin which uh helped its value tremendously um i have decided to go in on another uh upstarting marketplace that has been absolutely on fire the last couple weeks and that's nba top shot have you heard of that no okay so it's something you should check out because uh it's a platform the sports card market in general has been booming about the last year and sports trading cards are at an all-time high but this platform nba top shot allows you to own, it's basically a GIF, but it, they call them moments. And it's these virtual cards on this site that you can buy and trade using blockchain. And uh, I bought a pack last week. I was one of a couple thousand lucky people to get a pack last week. And I bought it for $14 American and made 200 bucks American selling the wow. moments. And there was a LeBron card, there was a Zion card that sold for 100,000 this week. Like this market is bananas and I have questions about whether or not it's going to be sustainable, but it kind of makes sense because everything is moving online and there are obviously always going to be those people who have the uh, preferred cardboard paper in their hands, but this market is growing and I don't have that much money to put into it. So I'm just trying to pick and choose cards that I think are going to go up in value a lot. Uh, I got like a Fred Van Vliet, a Malcolm Brogdon, uh, 
I have a Dylan Brooks all for like under five bucks. So hopefully that they'll just raise a bit and yeah, just trying to make a little bit of money. It's an interesting marketplace. Yeah. I mean, we're the economy is very much something you can view for, through a nihilistic lens and that's how most of those companies make billions so why not uh see it that way from our position as well yeah definitely man i was like halfway through coming up this super elaborate metaphor for the whole thing with like the wall street melvins being this like super analytical team that shoots like non-stop threes and like the redditors were just shocking them by making like consecutive contested mid-range jump shots and uh they were like having a full rotating bench that like went hundreds deep because the 2007 sackman brothers had like changed the rules and regulations but uh fell a little short in the creativity mode but yeah that's that's been fantastic to follow i've been really enjoying that saga and coverage so all right <laughs> it the world it's crazy that that's kind of the story now that's been taking over i'm just happy it's no longer a political story that's dominating the headlines and if that's a good thing or a bad thing not my place to say there is some there is some beauty and you are seeing a very broad coalition of people protesting like when the nasdaq ceo goes on cable news and says hey we need to stop these markets or the robin hood we need to pause these markets so us can like reassess and make sure we don't get too screwed over when uh robin hood the u.s stock trading company just froze the selling of those or buying of those assets excuse me there was wide protest across the political spectrum. So left, right, eat the rich. Yeah, and then uh, the class action that came out yesterday. Should yeah. be interesting to follow. In terms of sports, I will make a terrible transition, but just jump right into uh, what we're going to be talking about today. I got a little bit more Blue Jays talk for you because um, I was feeling a little bit nostalgic yesterday from their run back in 2015 and uh, I was watching a couple of videos, brought me back. It was a great summer. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit of football, not about the Super Bowl, um, but going to talk about the news that Sean Watson requested a trade yesterday. Uh, Max has got a little bit of com combat corner for us, uh, some NBA storylines because there were some great games on Wednesday night specifically, and then finish up with some uh, hockey talk. So without further ado, I will jump into the latest Blue Jays news for our baseball fans. And I, and I think this is relevant for most of baseball because the Blue Jays have seemed to be the team making the most moves as of late. Uh, and I have seen a couple of American outlets write stories about them, which is nice to see us, us here up north getting a little bit of coverage. Uh, so the Blue Jays signed Marcus Semyon for a one-year $18 million deal. And they made a trade for Steven Matz. Uh, they gave up one of their top pitching prospects, Sean Reed Foley, in the deal uh, to add the lefty to the um, starting rotation. First, I'll talk about Simeon. Uh, a lot of people were worried about too much money. I want to nip that in bud right away and say that the Blue Jays' young core is full of lots of young talent, which means they're all making very minimal amounts of money. So right now in this baseball where there's 
there's no official salary cap. There is a, a luxury tax type thing that they have. Uh, but because there's no salary cap, they can afford to pay this guy however much they want because they still have so much room to spend, even with the Springer signing, even with the Ryu signing. They have the space to get this guy. Uh, they could have had him probably a couple more years, but I think the one-year deal is good because you know he's going to be playing hard for that next contract. And when Marcus Simeon's playing hard, I think he can be super, super valuable to this team. He's an eight-year vet. He's a great utility infielder. He'll play a lot of third base most likely, but he, he also can slot in and play some short and some second, move around the diamond. In 2019, he was third in the league in MVP voting, which I don't expect from him uh, coming this year, but just crazy. 7.6 war, and he played all 162 games and was like fantastic on both sides of the ball for the athletics. And if we can get even 80% of that, that is such an upgrade over what we've had for the past couple of years. Um, last year he struggled, but again, you can't really, you got to throw all of last year out the window almost with guys, especially who have struggled due to the mental health concerns, due to all the craziness that was 2020. So I can't hold that against him and hope that he regresses back to what he has been previously in his career. So I'm, I think it's a pretty low risk, high reward move for the Jays. And, and when they were super successful, they had a bunch of great hitters complemented by these utility guys who know how to win and know how to make the right plays. My issue now is they still need some more pitching. They make the trade for Mats. Uh, he himself also had a rough 2020 season. He's a left-handed starting pitcher. Uh, back when he was a couple of years ago, when he was a rookie, he was sixth in rookie of the year voting, which is pretty good. Um, I, it's another guy where it's low risk and, and you get a decent reward if he could end up being kind of your three, four starter in the rotation. Um, he's got good stuff. I, yeah. And, and Sean Reed Foley has got a couple of cups of coffee with us for a while now. And I don't think he worked into our development system. So it's good to make a move. Matt's is still young and fits into the timeline of what the Jays are trying to do and just adds a more dependable arm uh, to the rotation because you know, with a lot of these guys, if they struggle starting, you can kind of transition him into one of those long arms out of the bullpen to complement a Julian Merriweather or a Nate Pearson or someone like that. Just having a righty start it and a lefty come in and pitch three innings or something, kind of like what they did with Robbie Ray last year. So two solid moves to the Jays. I mean, when you sign a guy like George Springer, no matter what else happens, your offseason is going to be a success, but they've gotten some bullpen arms. They've now got Semyon. Uh, they get mats, and this is looking to be a really, really bright next couple of years for the Blue Jays, so I'm really, really excited. Their lineup is going to be deep, one through nine, it seems like. If Danny Jansen can really up his hitting, then you've got a dangerous hitter at every single spot in the order, and they're just, whenever the Blue Jays are, are doing well, the city of Toronto is just, it just seems fun, because when the other teams are playing well, it's fine, but the weather is usually crappy, and so uh, it's fun to have a team performing well when it gets to those summer months because you got everyone hanging out outside and just the atmosphere is fantastic. So I'm really hoping that the Jays can make another playoff run and eventually we'll have fans in the stands to, to see it happen. Uh, and not just at the Rogers Center, but at the new stadium when it finally gets constructed, which will be fun. All right, that's enough baseball talk. We'll take a quick break and then I'll come back for another short segment, uh, this time about football.
And we're back to talk a little bit of football. Uh, I will talk about the Super Bowl a little bit on Monday and then do a full preview of it on next Friday before the weekend comes up. Uh, it's going to be excellent. And there's lots of storylines to talk about, but I didn't want to jump in on all the storylines that are going to get beaten like a dead horse, especially this last week, the whole Brady's old, the Mahomes versus Brady, the uh, home Super Bowl, all that stuff. I want to get into some of the nitty gritty of it and just not ready to do that now when they're still over a week away. What I will talk about is the uh, news yesterday. Officially, Sean Watson has requested a trade out of Houston. Uh, so it's been a rough year for Houston sports fans in general. James Harden's out, the Astros cheating scandal. Uh, yeah, it's just, they're, they're having a rough goal of it right now. So my heart goes out to them, but, uh, yeah, it's fun to talk about one of the top five quarterbacks on the move and where he could end up. And there are other quarterbacks on the move, but I just want to talk about Watson for now uh, because I want to just talk about the top five teams, in my opinion, personally, uh, where he would fit in nicely and would be really, really fun to watch. And so, of course, as a completely biased person, the number one team on my list is the Denver Broncos, uh, my team that I cheer for. Not only is it incredible to have a top five quarterback and you would give up anything for him because there's no greater value in football, but I actually think that he would fit in really well with the Denver Broncos outside of that, just objectively. They have a defense that is solid and you've got a couple guys in Von Miller and, and Simmons and Bradley Chubb and Von Miller's probably nearing he's got probably one or two really really solid seasons left in him uh, and I think this defense is solid not as good as it's been the last couple of years but it's definitely a defense that can make plays and so if you have an offense that can put up some points then this defense is going to be really effective and I think that's what the Broncos have the potential to be. Sean Watson would come in and have a ton of weapons. Jerry Judy, uh, Deshaun Hamilton, Cortland Sutton, KJ Hamler. Uh, you've got the tight end, Noah Fant, who I think could be similar to a Travis Kelsey, or if not a Travis Kelsey, maybe like a, a Zach Ertz type, who is really, really effective and maybe could have a thousand yards receiving as a tight end. Uh, you've got the dual thread of Philip Lindsay and Melvin Gordon, which are a pair of solid running backs. I, I just think Deshaun would fit in really nicely with all these young weapons around him. Uh, the Broncos would need to probably continue to beef up the offensive line because that's been an issue for them for a while now, going back about eight to 10 years. Uh, so if they can figure out the offensive line, it'd be a perfect spot for Watson and they'd have the defense to complement him. Uh, the next team I'd like to see him on is the San Francisco 49ers who have a top five defense uh, when they're all healthy and uh, any like top quarterback with, uh, oh goodness, I'm blanking now, Shanahan, Kyle Shanahan uh, would just be fun to watch because he is like one of the best offensive play callers of all the motion and stuff that he does. Uh, and he's been stuck with Jimmy Garoppolo and, and Blaine Gabbard and, uh, kind of middle of the pack guys to bench quarterbacks that he struggled with CJ Cuthbert being another one. Uh, and so if he had a, a top talent quarterback, there's no telling how many points these guys could score in a game and it'd be really fun to watch and they'd get the ball back a lot. Cause this Niners defense forced a lot of turnovers. 
Next team, uh, and I think one of the most realistic teams to get him would be the Miami Dolphins. I think he uh, mentioned that he'd be okay going there, and they have the third overall pick in this draft. They have Tua Tagovailoa, who looked not great for how highly they drafted him, but there's still a ton of potential there as he was one of the best college quarterbacks we've ever seen. And so they could build a trade package around that pick and around Tua in order to get Deshaun. And these two teams have traded as recently as last offseason. So Miami, another team, they're on the rise. They've added plenty of weapons. They probably need one solid running back who they hope can stay healthy. Uh, but he would fit in really nicely there. And their defense is on an unreal turnover streak and their defense is just really, really good. And Brian Flores is emerging to be a great head coach. So he'd be a great fit in Miami as well. Uh, fourth team on my list and people aren't going to like this one, but just for fun sake, he would fit really well on the Pittsburgh Steelers. And a lot of people hate the Steelers just in general, uh, a lot of love, a lot of hate because of how historic and how many, how much experience this team has as a contender. But just from a purely football perspective, their defense is consistently top five with all of its great playmakers. And so what they were missing last year was a guy who could, a quarterback who could move a little bit out of the pocket and a quarterback who could throw the ball deep. And that Big Ben couldn't do that anymore. They have these incredibly gifted physical receivers with Claypool, Smith-Schuster, Johnson, uh, and Washington. And if they had a guy to spread the ball out to them, then this passing game would be unstoppable. And, and I think it would just be fun to watch Watson throw up some deep balls to these guys who are uncoverable one-on-one -on, -one on the outside. The last team uh, I want to mention is the Washington football team. <laughs> They're a team that's... Uh, has a lot of history and a great following, but have been really unsuccessful the last couple decades because of ownership. And uh, they had a rough go of it this season, somehow making the playoffs with <laughs> Alex Smith and uh, Dwayne Haskins and Kyle Allen as their quarterbacks. And if they had Deshaun Watson, uh, you've got a couple of young receivers there with uh, Sims and McLaurin, uh, great running backs in Gibson and McKissick. And this defensive line is completely dominant. Chase Young is going to be one of the best defensive players for the next 10 to 12 years uh, and going to be really fun to watch him dominate. And so it would be really nice for Watson to fit in there uh, as a guy who will probably get the ball back a lot in his defense and be able to put up a ton of points. So that's kind of my top five. Deshaun Watson anywhere would be fun to watch because of how special he is. But you really want a place where he has a little bit more weapons, uh, kind of like a DeAndre Hopkins. But <laughs> yikes, we won't talk about that trade. Uh, and you want a line that can protect him because the Houston Texans offensive line for the last two or three years now has been really, really terrible. And those last two years, they still managed to make the playoffs. But now the AFC South's getting better. And I think Watson just needs a new shake. And uh, I'm hoping he gets it because he's really fun to watch. So what are you following or like caught up on the nitty gritty specifics of the trade? Like what the contract situation is, what the Astros are asking, what they're likely to get in return in terms of value. So uh, the Houston Texans are, <laughs> yeah, they, well, so 
they're I think they're open to trades because they know he doesn't want to be there. And it's it's one thing to be James Harden and ask out and do all the things he does, but Deshaun Watson has consistently competed for this team and uh I think even the fan base understands that he has to go. Uh, in terms of contract, I think they recently signed him to a pretty lucrative extension, so it would have to be a trade. And even in football, like it's really, really impossible for these quarterbacks to ever become free agents because of the the uh, the tag, the franchise tag that they can put on people. So if you don't reach a decision in contract negotiations, then the team can just franchise tag and you get paid the average salary of the top five earners at that position, but you have to stay for another year. Um, and, and that's kind of a difference between the whole player empowerment in other leagues versus in football, where teams have a lot of control over their players for a long time. Uh, so it'd have to be a trade and you're talking minimum three first round picks for this guy, because he's just that special and plus uh, like players. Um, yeah, so a, there's going to be a team that definitely does it because there like are no assets in the world that compare to a top five quarterback. It's just the most valuable thing I think in all of sports. And so uh, you're going to see it happen. My guess is it's going to be the jets or the dolphins who make the move. You could even see the Jaguars uh, come in the top rope, but I think they're really set on having Trevor Lawrence as their quarterback for the next decade or so. So uh, yeah, look for the Jets or the Dolphins. Those seem to be the two in front, but there's always going to be a dark, dark horse team that flies in out of nowhere to make a trade. All right. That wraps up my little football uh, piece, and uh, we'll take a quick break and, and talk some boxing when we come back. And we're back. There's no UFC event this weekend. I think we have a pretty long stretch of them starting next weekend, but that means it's an empty week for Combat Corner. And I didn't really have any news to talk about. I wasn't sure if I was even going to do a piece. But then a couple of days back, I saw this news headline. And I was like, all right, I guess I'll talk about it. Uh, ben Askren has agreed to a boxing match with Jake Paul. It's going to be eight rounds under the promotion thriller, which was responsible for hosting the, the fight between... Uh, Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr., which Jake Paul co-mained on. It looks like it's happening in April. Man, this is so weird and so disappointing and so bizarre on so many levels. Uh, I guess the first part, which I find... I guess it's not really surprising. I, I'm probably the idiot for taking Jake Paul seriously in any degree whatsoever, but the guy's like chirping and crying and talking all this shit about how he wants to be this boxer. And it's like, okay, let's see you get in the boxing ring with a guy who has a win in the boxing ring. Stop boxing like YouTubers and NDA stars. And who does he go to box next when the McGregor shit obviously falls short? The worst striker at the highest level of mixed martial arts is who he chooses, Ben Askren. Do you know anything about Ben Askren besides Jorge Masvidal's knee? No, that's it. That's what I was going to say. All I know is he got a kneecap to his temple and got sent to La La Land. Yeah, so a couple things about Ben Askren. He is a former Olympic wrestler. Didn't medal, but that's still a pretty high pedigree. He made his 
mixed martial arts debut in the Bellator Association, where he picked up some notable wins on Douglas Lima, especially, although it was before Douglas Lima became the fighter he is today. And there were these questions about him making his mixed martial or going to the UFC because he similar kind of to George St. Pierre in his prime. He was just such a dominant wrestler. Like he he just shoots, closes the distance, I guess, similar to Habib as well. And just once he's on top of you, nonstop riding, scrambling, transition, making you work. There's this one uh clip that's especially notable where he was fighting some Russian guy and he like got on top of him and was literally riding him like a dog or cattle and started like waving his hips bucking getting like a USA USA chant so he's a showman he's a wrestler but he is not a striker um there were a lot of questions about him in the UFC. He was supposed to switch from Bellator to the UFC. Some sort of contract shenanigans went on. Uh, there's In his Joe Rogan appearance, he tells his side of the story. But he ended up in one FC in Asia. And then the UFC and one did this kind of unprecedented before and after swap of fighters where they just let them go on their contracts so they could sign with Cross where the UFC let go Demetrius Johnson and 1FC let go Ben Askren. And then Ben Askren had three very memeable fights in the UFC. The first one against Robbie Lawler featured him getting slam knocked out, having the fight not stopped, him recovering, putting Robbie Lawler in a bulldog choke where Robbie Lawler's arm went limp and then gave a thumbs up and mid thumbs up Herb Dean stopped the fight to Lawler's immediate chagrin the second the fight stopped. I think my opinion on that matter is clear from how I described it. Ben Askren, then a fighter who had never been knocked out in his career or really taken any brain damage other than that Lawler slam I just mentioned, um, became the fighter to have the fastest knockout against him in UFC history. Really the foundation of Jorge Masvidal's skyrocket to stardom. And then he had a fight against one of the best grapplers in the UFC of the jiu-jitsu variety, Damien Maya, which consisted of some hilarious stand-up striking from the two like 35-year-old pluses, and then some very quick, fantastic ground transitions, which eventually ended up with Damien Maya getting a submission. Askren retired from mixed martial arts shortly after that, citing back damage and surgery he needed to have. So this is just so strange because Ben Askren, like Ben Askren is not a striker. He is the one of the most pure mixed martial artists in terms of his discipline that like exists in the UFC and it is pure wrestling there's a reason Jorge Masvidal was able to knock him out in five seconds and that's because he knew exactly what Ben Askren was going to do like you when you watch guys like Habib guys like George St. Pierre even Damian Maya they know how to mix it up and like stay on the feet long enough to find their takedown that was never Ben Askren's game it was I'm going to walk forward and I'm going to get my hands on you 
and it worked for him because he was so effective once he got his hands around you like even if you knew it was coming there was just you couldn't really do much about it unless you could time that perfect one-shot knockout as Masvidal did. So on one hand, I think he... other. I know it's weird because his most famous moment is getting knocked out, but I think he has a really good chin. I, I mean, the Lawler slam was terrifying and he just came back from the dead in like three seconds. The Masvidal knee puts anyone out i don't care if you weigh 500 pounds if you shoot down for a takedown like that and someone times it with a flying knee you are going to sleep super necessary follow-up shots or otherwise so i think he is gonna be able to take it and i'm knocking his striking the the I think he threw the spinning back fist against Maya, not the other way around. That was like the only time we've seen him really strike for an extended period of time against the even older Maya. And Maya did get the better of it. But I mean, Damien Maya has been working on his striking for a long time. So has Ben Askren. He has been practicing striking for longer than Jake Paul has. I mean even if he just practices it to figure out how to get into the wrestling, it's not it's not like there's going to be anything new for him. He's going to be very familiar with boxing gloves, boxing drills, and he's going to be fighting someone who has some experience or who has less experience than him. I don't... I, he gave an interview with Ariel Helwani where he predicted a seventh round TKO, this being an eight round fight. And... I think that speaks to his game plan. And I mean, Jake Paul's been in there for three total rounds. And even the first round of that two-round fight, he basically won it in that round. And it was just a matter of finishing the next round. So I don't know. It might be fun. We might. Ben Askren is a great shit talker. Just very natural, nothing forced. Just knows how to kind of casually and comfortably get under people's skin especially the more like hyped up angry type they are i mean that's why the masvidal fight had so many eyeballs on it because Askren was talking mad shit to masvidal it sounds weird to say in hindsight but he was the favorite so i can see a situation where like Askren just jake paul is like winding up swinging at him doing his best to knock him out and Askren just like takes a couple shots probably is very frustrating to deal with in the clinch he'd technically sound enough to not just bum rush in the way like nate robinson was doing that got him knocked out so i don't know but at the same time if Jake Paul does what he has continued to do, which is just knock out guys with no boxing experience, the UFC and mixed martial arts are going to get, from his side anyway, such a bad rep. No one who actually is familiar with Ben Askren's career is going to think twice about like, oh, Jake Paul could knock out a UFC fighter. Like, no, Ben Askren is such a variant from what, you're talking about when you talk about UFC fighters these days but yeah I mean do you have any thoughts on this did you hear about it when it was announced yeah I heard about it when it was announced and the biggest thing for me is that uh at the very least he now Jay Paul has set himself 
belt up to fight someone who actually understands like spacing and has the like at least foot movement and the elite athleticism that is provided by at least a fighter where if you are let me find a picture of Ben Askren for you well no I know what he I know what he looks like but it's it's one thing to fight a basketball player who is like Nate Robinson was super bouncy and he was he's an incredible athlete but it's another thing to go up against someone who's been in a ring for years on end who understands how far he needs to be away from his opponent and knows how to move within the confines of a boxing ring octagon wrestling ring I guess it's called like it's just it the experience I think is going to be important here and like you said if, if Jay Paul's only really fought three rounds total and Askren's been in there for a lot longer than that I think Askren's going to figure out a way because he had a lot more experience just fighting he's going to figure out a way to just wear him down and and who knows maybe it'll be in the first round Askren realizes that like Paul, there truly is such a class difference between a guy who started boxing two years ago and someone who's been fighting their whole life, even if not boxing, there might could, there could just be a huge gap there. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be Paul coming out, just swinging for the fences, taking the early rounds, like regardless of how much he connects, because Askren will just be in like shell defensive mode. And then kind of similar to the Tiafima Lopez and Vasily Lomachenko fight, although I'm sorry to sully that fight by comparing it to this, but you're gonna, it's just a question of when does Paul slow down and wear down and when can Askren take over? I It would be so funny if he just like mixes in some trips and throws from the clinch, like... Oh, whoops, just got my foot there. Whoops, little slip there. And just like get under the guy's skin, make him swing at you. Uh, I, maybe when we get to our hockey segment, we can talk a little about uh, Muzzin's success poking a young, brash, angry person, but just get Paul to flip out similarly to, to Chuck and then success would follow from there. I don't know. It's... I just I hate I hate this sort of thing because you know what sh- sort of shit is going to be talked if Jake Paul wins and it's going to be so unjustifiable like I know man if you want to call yourself a boxer fight a fucking boxer like that's all I'm saying but I mean lots of reward not that much risk and that's the decision he's making it's the opposite of the mcgregor matchup which would be 100 percent risk but like the odds are so stacked against you that it doesn't matter um i i mean this is what prize fighters do they just matchups where the risk reward is so optimized for them either way that they've got absolutely nothing to lose or just so much to gain from a win that is so above what the win actually is what can you say though i mean if you've got a punchable face people are gonna pay to see someone try and punch it although the uh logan paul floyd mayweather thing has been postponed so maybe it'll be interesting to see if this draws more hype and moves forward better than that Mm -hmm. All right, I've probably spent way too long on this already, but 
but we'll uh, be right back after a short break to talk some basketball. And we're back for some NBA storylines. We had an electric Wednesday night in the world of basketball. Owen, take us through it. Yeah, there was two really, really fun games on that I was trying to flip between while keeping up with the Raptors game. Uh, and that is the game I'll talk about first, just because the Raptors now on a, a mini two-game losing streak after they had such a gritty performance that first night in Indiana. Uh, Siakam missed that first loss, and then OG missing the game against the Bucks on Wednesday night. Um, and that was a huge loss because he's their primary guy to defend Giannis, who quietly seems to put out incredible numbers every game, every time he steps out on the court. It really shows the Raptors' apparent uh, weaknesses when uh, Boucher and Le- and uh, Baines, pardon me, are getting dominated on the glass. And although the Raptors had some offensive rebounding, it was mostly out of center and out of Lopez and Giannis contesting shots rather than fighting for that offensive glass. And so the the all it highlights for me is the Raptors have great needs in terms of center production which won't come anytime soon this season unless they're in on Andre Drummond which I'll get to later and uh, the other thing is they they really are super shallow at wing and a lot of people talk about how Toronto is great at finding these long guys who can play defense and and shoot effectively enough to stay out on the court but in reality besides Siakam and OG they really haven't had much at the wing position for a while now. And you can argue that Stanley Johnson has given them great energy, but Stanley Johnson is not like you need one more dependable guy. It's kind of the situation Boston's in right now. Everyone was so excited for them to have this incredible all-star duo on Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Jalen Brown, especially has taken an incredible leap this season. He's up from 20 points per game to 27 points per game this season, which is incredible. Uh, but Behind those two, they really don't have much. It's very similar to the Raptors. In, like They've got Semi Ojale, Grant Williams, guys that they just aren't as dependable as those two top guys, and the Raptors are in that same situation. So that's something that needs to be addressed moving forward because one of these guys is always on the floor at, at, at a time, but they're also usually taking the most difficult defensive matchup while also being relied upon to provide some offense. And so I think you need one more really dependable, either defensive guy, or if you get lucky enough and fall high enough in the draft where you can get a, an elite score, uh, one of those top 10 guys, then that would be ideal. Uh, but I think they just, Stanley Johnson is, has been giving them great minutes so far this season, but I think you need to upgrade that position uh, because especially if one of these guys is out, Siakam and OG, then there's really nothing behind them. I mean, yeah, I, it strikes me that they're in that unhappy middle ground where they're not good enough to place well in the conference, but they're too good to fall down far enough to get like an excellent draft pick and will probably end up somewhere. I mean, they do great in the draft, even in the early 20s, and it's a deep draft class. So whatever happens, I'm sure we'll be a better team for it, but... I, I think they'll finish high enough to not get one of those like coveted top 12 picks, but probably 
solid chance they have a tough playoff matchup in the first round. And we'll talk about this more as we get close to the trade deadline. The the onus then becomes on uh, Masai to truly say, do I want this team to make a playoff run? Because there's no gate revenue this year for playoff games or anything like that. So there's no real incentive to make the playoffs besides obviously wanting to win and compete every night. So it can be on a Masai to say, hey, let's make the most out of this season from a long-term view, from a management perspective. And maybe you ask about moving a couple of these guys. I, I honestly, at this point, there is no single Raptor. I Maybe Fred Van Vliet. That's, that's the only one that I wouldn't move. I think all of these guys for the right price are available. Like Siakam, OG, any, any players are available for the right price. Obviously we probably value these guys higher than the rest of the league does. So they won't get traded, but uh, yeah, why not move some of these guys for some assets that you can turn into great prospects in the future because the Raptors have a great development team and, you're most likely not going to move all of your kind of top four guys. So you'll still have some winning culture left after moves are made. But I think it's on Masai and management to say, if this team, if we don't have goals for the playoffs then we got to work to make this roster a little bit worse so that we fall down the standings and make our way to towards better odds for a top pick. I mean, yeah, it, it would make more sense to me to move Lowry than to move Siakam or OG because like you, well, I can see see Siakam doing very very well in a, on a team where he is the number two offensive option, and he's not gonna get as many doubles, and he's not gonna quite have the same pressure. I can see OG excelling anywhere. Just I think what he brings defensively is so important, as you highlighted in this loss. And I mean, he hasn't figured out how to generate his own offense, but sitting at the open three dangerous he, he's good for a couple rushes to the paint so i can see a winning team placing value on him but i i don't uh i can't i don't see the point in moving backwards with those two because it would kind of signify a ready to give up and like we've seen their ceiling and we want more which i don't think we're at that point yet if you're moving one of those guys, like I heard it mentioned briefly on a podcast and it's kind of tickled the back of my mind. It's just trading one of those guys for like a Michael Porter Jr. And while I wouldn't do that trade because I worry about uh, Porter's healthiness and his durability, uh, it would definitely be something interesting where you could possibly get a guy with similar long-term upside uh, who's a little bit more affordable and just provides you something different. Like the one thing you'll say is Siakam will never get to Porter's level in terms of natural ability to create a bucket because Siakam is, has improved his shot immensely, but Porter is just built for scoring. He can make a shot over anyone and create his own shot. And he's going to be spectacular at that as long as he stays healthy. And maybe that's something the Raptors would want over a guy who plays a little bit more defense, but is a little bit more robotic in terms of, uh, offense creation. Yeah, I'm getting chills imagining uh, what Siakam does with Jokic's playmaking, but... Yeah. Oh, that would be unbelievable. It, it would be, yeah, it would be a great trade for the Nuggets. 
Uh, I didn't have them on my list of storylines, but that is the position of value that they need the most is they need a wing to stop a LeBron, a Kawhi, Paul George, um, even a guy who's quick enough to defend someone like Donovan Mitchell, uh, even a guy who's quick enough to stop someone like Devin Booker, right? You need a, a wing to stop some of these top teams in the West and, and Denver doesn't really have that. And Michael Porter Jr. doesn't play the kind of defense that they need. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I still, I feel like those two still have enough upside where you don't fully know the value of what they're going to be at. And unless you have like some sort of guarantee of at least as much value as you can hope for them, I don't see that trade as worthwhile. And I can't imagine any team being ready to offer that up. So unless like Golden State wanted to give up Wiseman or something, but. Well, and that is, again, I don't have Golden State here, but I think they're definitely, if you think about it, are Steph and Clay and Draymond willing to wait five years when Wiseman finally turns into the player that they need him to be? Because I think he's on a pretty long development curve as it looks right now. Okay. So, So, like, I think Wiseman's available. If they can get a guy, uh, I think Bradley Beal is probably the number one name out there in trade markets because he's 27. He's just reaching the beginning of his prime years. He's leading the league in scoring. Uh, So Wiseman for Beal or some sort of package like that would be really interesting from the Warriors perspective because um, they have centers who know their system and fit in well, even if Kevon Looney is not a household name. He's really solid for them, and that's all they really need. If you add Bradley Beal to Steph and Dre, that would be so much fun to watch. And Beal wants out. Yeah, and everyone's talking about that right now. Where should Beal go? But I don't want to dive into that because it's going to get overly discussed. But just I think Wiseman's on the table for a top asset. And Wiseman for a Siakam OG would be a really interesting trade, I think. Golden State doesn't do that. They don't value those guys highly enough, but it would be interesting. I actually do think they'd fit fairly well into the system, like both having solid three-point shots, solid enough playmaking ability, and maybe uh, Steve Kerr could do something about Siakam's roboticness. But it would it would most likely be OG, just because I don't know if they could fit salaries to get Siakam, because then they'd have. Yeah, four really highly paid guys on their roster. It'd have to be OG for like Kelly Oubre and Wiseman. That would be, yeah. And we might send more value back on our side. All right. (laughs) Fun little hypotheticals to throw out there. I will move along to the other uh, two games I was watching Wednesday night, which were awesome. Uh, The first of which being the battle of the two of the three top MVP candidates, the Sixers and the Lakers, LeBron versus Embiid. LeBron pulled no punches. Embiid made Anthony Davis look like an average defender, which I have not seen in a really long time. AD can guard pretty much everyone on the floor. And there was one play late in the fourth where Embiid just drove right by him and got an and one layup. And I was like, he made that look so easy. And you forget because it's been the story of him and Simmons not fitting together. And it's been the story of injuries and it's been the story of, is this guy mature enough? But when Embiid is locked in, he's a top three player in the world. 
and his skill set in the post is ancient, but it's unstoppable because no one knows how to play post defense anymore because we have no more post scores. And at the rim, he can block anyone. He's just this seven foot three monster with the skills of a guard. And it's unbelievable to watch when he takes over a game, which is what he did at least in the first half. Um, and in the second half late, they were going to him down the stretch. Uh, him and LeBron were going back and forth. The Lakers made a couple counter punches. They were down 14 points with four minutes left, the Lakers. And LeBron was resting from like the six minute mark to the four minute mark, even when they were down double digits. Cause they're like, he's going to come back in and we're going to make a run. This Lakers team is just that confident. And they had a couple threes from Caruso and KCP uh, and they were back in it. LeBron has been incredible this last week, especially in that game against the Cavaliers where he had 46 and was talking uh, to the Cavs management group on the sideline who must've said something. It was just awesome games from LeBron. Uh, and they, Davis gets a layup with like 10 seconds left to put the Lakers up one after trailing by 14 and uh, the Sixers go to Tobias Harris. So Simmons in the dunker spot, Embiid down low, and they go to Tobias Harris, who was excellent as a secondary role player to Embiid tonight. And Harris hits the game winner. And uh, the Sixers win, and they uh, continue to hold first spot in the Eastern Conference. They've been excellent. Uh, it was just a really fun game. And uh, I was really enjoying that down the stretch. The other game that I was flipping between was the Brooklyn Nets and the Atlanta Hawks. And all of their games have been so much fun so far. I think they've played three times now. And each time the scores have been in the 130s, 140s. <laughs> and this game was no different. It goes to overtime. Uh, there was a James Harden ISO possession to end the fourth quarter for the Nets with KD having Kevin Herter on them. Uh, so I don't know how KD feels about that because he probably would have scored over Herder, uh, but Harden was playing hero ball and Kyrie is also on the court. So just a little interesting dynamic there at the end, but in overtime and late in the fourth quarter, the, the nets were just, we can't play defense, but every single possession, we're going to put Trey young in a screen roll. So whoever Trey young's guarding come guard this guy at the top of key. And we're going to blow by you and get a layup or get an open three. And, and on the other side, the nets didn't play any defense and Trey young was getting, harassed by Joe Harris but was still finding ways to get open and other guys were making layups Cam Reddish had a crazy layup late in the game uh, it was fun but in the end the Nets just had a little bit more firepower and were able to come up with enough stops to get the win and uh, they need to do something because they they it's hard to win by out shooting people every night. And if you go cold then, and you can't stop anyone, then you're gonna lose in a playoff series. And uh, there was a little bit of rumoring that the Cleveland Cavaliers were looking to buy out Andre Drummond, which would make him available. And obviously his first choice would be go to Brooklyn and that would be a really interesting fit. Uh, Andre Drummond has been an all-star. He can average 20 rebounds a game probably for a season, which, is very rare in today's NBA. He, I think has become underrated because he's so overpaid and uh, people think that he is just kind of a bum, but he's really not. If he's engaged, he can play solid defense. He's a huge body and hard to move. He rebounds at an incredible rate. 
Uh, and he's never had this kind of talent surrounding him. He's had kind of a, a Blake Griffin, Reggie Jackson, Derrick Rose uh, off the bench. Detroit was in and out in terms of what they had surrounding him, but he's never had stars like this to play off of. So if he's screening for a Kyrie or he's screening for Harden or he's cleaning up the mess uh, and outletting to KD on a break, like he, he's got pretty great playmaking skills for someone his size. And I think that's also underrated. Uh, so he would be a perfect fit for them. And he'd probably provide just a little bit better defense than DeAndre Jordan because Jordan looks washed now at his age. Uh, so Drummond would be really great fit for them if they can get him on a on a minimum out of a buyout. It'd be it'd be kind of unfair to be frank. And I and other two teams I heard were interested were the Dallas Mavericks, which is an interesting fit because they already have a bunch of rim running centers, and of course our Toronto Raptors. And uh, I think Drummond is really something that we need. Um, I haven't been a fan of it in the past because of how much he's been paid, but if we can get him off of a buyout, he's way better than Baines and better than Boucher just because of the incredible rebounding. Uh, he's a great screener at his size. If you can get him to engage and lock in, which is something I think Nick Nurse can do, then he can play solid defense for you and be a big body that uh, takes up space near the rim. He's never been an incredible shot blocker, but he just at his size, he can alter shots, and that's important. Uh, the and Toronto defense, just to build off your point, especially OG Ananobi, excels at taking a star player and forcing them into a one-on-two matchup. So I can see Nick Nurse like designing some beautiful systems and plays where you have Drummond defending the rim. And I don't care if it's a Giannis, if it's a Donovan Mitchell, whatever like ball handling two to four player is trying to drive OG, just steering them right into Drummond. And all he has to do is be big and scary. Exactly. And that's what they did so well with a guy like Marcus Gasol, who didn't really ever jump. But all he did was stand there with his hands up. And because he's so big, guys can't jump over him anyways. And the Raptors are going to need that because uh, they have the, I think, eighth or tenth hardest strength of schedule remaining in the season. So they, they kind of got their easy schedule out of the way and are 7-11. and 11, And now they've got a bunch of teams still to play, like a Utah, like a Los Angeles Lakers, like Philly, uh, Milwaukee a couple more times. So they've got a lot of tough games ahead of them. And they'll need to throw out some wacky defensive schemes to get some wins in the regular season. I, just the way the Nets are going, though, the fact that they did get Harden in the end, I, if Drummond gets bought out, which I don't know how likely, but I just, I guess, like seems like 60 70% chance because, yes. like you said, it's so it seems on paper so effective it's just it might just be unfair it's fun to talk about for sure all right the last game i want to talk about is continually the jazz have impressed their win streak extends to 10 games they blow out the dallas mavericks without donovan mitchell in the lineup uh and it just shows that like this team has reached a point where its continuity is so incredible um with Conley and Bogdanovich now in their second year and Joe Ingles, Rudy Gobert, 
uh, have been staples. Royce O'Neal is an incredibly underrated defender and has been fantastic for them for the last couple of years. But just Mitchell comes out and Joe Ingles slots in. Joe Ingles is great in the pick and roll. He's a great passer. He moves the ball around. He hits open threes. And uh, yeah, when your team is as hot as it is shooting the basketball, you can afford to have nights like the Raptors have had the last couple of years where one of your top guys sits out, but everyone else steps up. And that's what the Jazz are doing right now. And yeah, they're second in the West. They're right there with the Lakers. Um, and yeah, continue to impress 10 straight. So well done, Utah. Yeah, it, it is interesting. Uh, just that you talk about like when a player's in the zone, but what happens when an entire team gets in the zone and everyone's making open shots and stepping up and we I'm, I guess the Raptors you could argue were the last team to like have that playoff success from that kind of model like the way Van Fleet was able to step up against the Bucks, just different players on different nights whoever the hot hand shifts instead of like staying constant in one or two guys all right. Well, that finishes up our NBA storylines. We'll take another quick break and we'll come back to talk some hockey. And we're back. I've got some more coffee. So happy there. Time for some talking hockey and the predictions for the NHL North division are starting to bear some fruit in that we've got the Leafs at the top and the Senators at the bottom. So most of the pundits, myself included, had it right at number one and number seven. Everything in between a bit more on the rocks and obviously only six to ten games played per team. But in a 56-game season, that's actually a fairly significant chunk. Definitely. And uh, I only have two teams out of the four that I picked in the top four right now. Uh, I don't know if it's the same for you, but uh, the Alberta teams need to step it up for me, uh, which they haven't done this past week because our beautiful boys in blue have been on an absolute roll lately. They've won four in a row. They're seven and two on the season. Those two losses came in regulation, but that's still enough to, for them to be sitting atop the Scotiabank North Division uh, with a beautiful record. And I have been liking what I've seen from the Leafs so far because they're continuing to integrate new guys into the system and they're continuing to learn game by game, but they're getting results, which has been very different from Leafs teams of old. And Wayne Simmons getting his another goal last night, third goal of the season against the Oilers on the power play. Power play has been absolutely lights out. Uh, they moved Nylander and Tavares to the second unit and it's been working for them. Uh, Nylander had a power play goal last night and Matthews had a power play goal last night. Uh, so the Leafs have just been buzzing, uh, but let's take it back to, I believe it was Tuesday night uh, against the Calgary flames. I stayed up to watch most of that game and uh it was an incredible first period from the Leafs, only allowed one shot by the Flames. Uh, the Flames had two kind of chances. They had a whole power play where they got no shots. And the Flames team kind of looked like the Leafs team of last year, where they just wouldn't show up for the first period of the game. Uh, the Leafs then proceeded to not show up in the second period and were being outshot by the end of that period. 
but they pull out the win. They've continued to pull out wins, even if they've blown two goal leads, uh, which you mentioned off air. And uh, yeah, there's not much more I can say is they're getting results and they're continuing to grow the team. Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews getting paid the big bucks. And there's only so much expectation you have on these guys, but right now they're, they're meeting expectations. Mitch Marner's second in the league in points sandwiched nicely in between McDavid and Tricidal. So that's good company. Uh, he's been such a pleasure to watch so far this season. It looks like he's finally having fun again. Uh, last season with the contract talks, I think really weighed down on him. I think I mentioned this last podcast as well, but it's just really fun to see Mitch Marner uh, out there skating around doing his thing. And uh, Matthews is just, he had a power play goal last night where he just rips it and you go, oh, I'm so happy that he's on our team. Like he's just a bonafide superstar goal scorer once in a couple years type talent. And I'm so happy that they're both on our team and they're both playing well. Uh, and we're getting contributions from other guys. Uh, still like to see a little bit more, but so far, so good. And and Freddie stepped it up after those first two games of questionableness. We've already talked about it, but Freddie's been solid and he's needed to be now that Jack Campbell's out for a couple weeks. Uh, I worry about Hutchison as the backup. We'll probably only see him once, hopefully, until Campbell's back. But yeah, Freddie's had to step up and he's been playing well so far. So good stuff from the Leafs. Four yeah. wins in a row. Can't complain about it. Yeah, they're starting to look like the team they should be on paper with Matthews and Marners stepping up in the big moments, providing the offense. Freddie starting to look like the elite goaltender he's supposed to be who steps in there and gives you the game when you need it. Got Still got questions about the defensive core, but I think there are a lot of pieces I like in there. It's just a matter of fitting them together in the right way and putting them out in the right moments, mixing up like the offense of Riley and Brody with the defense that you get in different ways from guys like Muzzin and Hall who are going to make the right plays at the right times and give up the body when it needs to be given up. You hope Brody can blossom a little more. I mean, I think Riley and Muzzin both are like very stark pure offensive and def not that there's anything wrong with Riley's defense but uh hopefully they can both lead Brody to grow a little more there have been times where the second line of the Leafs has been my favorite line to watch uh Tavares and Nylander kind of making Pittsburgh's double-headed monster look a little soft presenting some sort of like double-headed monster that has like four sets of teeth on each head or so um, I think, I mean, Johnny Tavares in a weird place because he was like a, he went from being a franchise number one player, first overall draft pick, captain of a team to keeping the C, but not really those expectations or that position. But at times, especially in the first run of five games, when it didn't seem like our first line was stepping up. Johnny Tavares was the number one player on the Leafs and he hasn't had to be, but I've, I've really liked what I've seen from him so far in just when Matthews and Marner aren't getting it done, he's there, spread out the defense, make them worry a little more. Maybe his 
early onslaught of offense has led some of the teams facing the Leafs to adjust their defensive schemes, pressure, and matchmaking. And that opened up a little space that has caused the blossoming we've seen from Matthews and Marner recently. But yeah, I mean, the Leafs, that's why I opened the segment up talking about where the predictions were for this division because the Leafs are doing right now more or less exactly what was predicted two goal uh lead give ups included maybe yeah uh yeah great point about Tavares when I we feel I feel a little bit spoiled at this point now that he's been on the team for a couple of years and if he's your number two center your captain absolute solid stud who's gonna put up almost point per game uh, every season then you're an incredibly rich person like he's just so consistent and solid and people I think ask for more because he's not flashy but his game is just so great as a compliment to what we have on that top line with Marner and Matthews being just flying all over the place um the last point I want to have about the Leafs is with that decor in the past it's been we have five guys maybe uh maybe six that we can even just put on the ice and as soon as one of them gets injured, we're screwed. This year, it feels like they have seven guys who they can put on the ice without being terrified. Like, you've got that back end, uh, those back three guys of Bogosian, Lettinen, and Dermot, all kind of hovering, five, six, seven. And none of those guys has named Marincin, so I'm satisfied for now. And if this team can continue to grow, maybe one of those guys can be moved for an even more solid piece. I don't think there will be a lot of trades this year just because of the whole quarantine period. Uh, but yeah, just having Bogosian, who's been blocking a ton of shots and has gotten beaten up recently, but he still dishes out punishment. Dermot and Lettinen look like guys who can move the puck around. And Lettinen, I think, is going to continue to get better as he gets acclimatized to the NHL game. So it's just imagine? so nice to now have seven guys who you can put on the ice. And even if they're not the best defenders, it's like, thank God it's not CC or Merchant. I'm, <laughs> I'm so excited for the moment for Lettinen to blossom and to have some sort of top power play unit of like Riley, Lettinen, Marner, Matthews, and take your pick on the fifth. I don't know if you want a skilled player, or just a <laughs> Simmons or Thornton in front of the net. Well, yeah. And then you forget, we also have Sandine and Liljegren in the minors waiting to come up right so we finally have a decor that actually runs deeper even if it's not the best top end or throughout it's guys that it's guys that you can throw into the lineup and not just be terrified every time they're on the ice yeah i mean if you look at past stanley cup champions we don't have like the Latang, the duncan keith the drew dowdy the victor hedman but it runs deep enough that we make up what we're lacking there on offense. And as long as everyone's going to be in the right place at the right time, and you've got those guys who give up the body, then Just I mean, the, biggest, the biggest fish to fry still remains the first round playoff curse. And yeah. that's, we can only wait. Moving on to the rest of the division, you uh, did have the Montreal Canadiens slotted in your number one pick, and that's looking like not a bad decision right now. Five wins, zero regulation losses, two overtime losses. I haven't been following them too closely, but seven games played behind the Leafs, 
and only two point so they've got uh two games in hand and only two points to make up so they're in comfortable position where they could jump out to first in the division yeah they're another team that's benefited from continuity and development of their younger guys carry price has been fantastic so far as we knew he would be with jake allen now as a very comfortable backup goalie their goal differential is 13 right now uh the Jets are second at seven and the Leafs are third at five. Uh, and so 13 is a monster number compared to other teams in this division. They, they just, they fight every night, man. This is a team that has built now a culture of just rolling lines that are going to wear you down and they play well, both sides of the ice and have great playmakers and, and a defense that can swallow you up. And yeah, when you've got a goalie like Carey Price, all the little mistakes that you have or the margins that need to be filled, he fills them. And I don't know if they're going to maintain this level of success. They haven't lost yet in regulation, but yeah, Montreal is really solid and, and definitely exceeded my expectations, but I'm happy I put them in my uh, playoff predictions. Yeah. And then big question mark on what we're going to see from the jets over the next two weeks for now, I guess maybe a week and a half that, I don't know how, when Dubois gets out of quarantine. For now, they're sitting at third. Yeah. Um, uh, Dubois and will be there. And, and Ehlers and Connor have really stepped up for them as skill guys to kind of replace line A. I think that's one of the other reasons why they felt comfortable moving him is they have some decent guys on the wing who have, who have been stepping up year over year. Uh, yeah, and they've been great. And Connor Hellebuck's going to try and build off of his Vesna campaign last year he's really solid too yeah and then the Canucks are only fourth because they're 10 games in but they are on a three-game hot streak so maybe they're starting to address some of those early holes two of those games came against the Senators though so you can't yeah. be too <laughs> yeah. yeah and then Oilers and Flames struggling we both are uh I think missing two of our four picks right now because they're behind where they were expected which i mean the depth of edmonton seems to be as expected with mcdavid and drysidel trying to carry the team but just not enough goaltending not enough defense not enough production from the bottom lines i think the flames i mean could they are at a plus one goal differential i think most of their losses have been close ones and i i do think we'll see them pick it up and catch up to where the Jets and Canadians are as the season progresses. They've just struggled to score right now. Like the Senators who are going to be very lonely at the bottom of the division have scored 17 goals this year in eight games. Uh, the Flames have scored 18 goals in six games given. So definitely a higher pace, but yeah, they've just struggled to put the puck in the net so far, uh, which won't be a problem very shortly for them because of the talent they have up front. Speaking of the flames and the puck, how about Muzzin flipping the puck and flipping out the truck? <laughs> well, so there's, yeah, you definitely saw that there was some back and forth between them throughout the game after Kachuk slammed his knee into, or uh, help, I fall, and then I can't get up onto Jack Campbell. Uh, yeah, so people, I think some people were saying that it was unsafe by Muzzin to do that. 
Who which is said that? Who is this is an absolute joke because he perfectly flipped the puck right in the dude's chest protector, and while Kachuk put the knee into the back of someone's neck uh, with his full weight on it. So, yeah, I I love the little games that we're gonna get from each of these teams playing each other nine times. I, that, uh, that's the most exciting part of this. Like now we've got him riled up so much and we're still going to play them like seven more times. And you know, every other team around the league looked at that or around the division looked at that and went like, Oh, so that's how you get under this guy's skin. And yeah. Uh, Muzzin looked like he was living rent free in his head though. So I love to see that. It's nice when you're on the, the side of the team that gets to play chippy and wins. Uh, must be how Bruins fans have felt for a decade now. Must be nice. I mean, even playing Chippy kind of cracks me up though, because it was the most like benign thing you could do. It wasn't. It wasn't like a cross check. It wasn't like a slash at the skates when the ref wasn't looking. Just oh, yeah. It, but now was... Muzzin's got some running mates, right? Simmons is willing to lay it out. He had a questionable hit against Mangiapane, uh on Tuesday, and. That's going to happen from time to time when you've got a guy like Simmons who who lays out the physical punishment. He did get penalized for it, so in the past now. And uh, Kerfoot is a pest as well. Hyman's going to get under your skin. He's not he's not going to be as in your face as Kerfoot, but oh God, Zach Hyman every game seems to be the MVP for me because he just works so hard compared to everyone else. And he's in there against the two biggest guys on the other team, just digging for the puck while Marner and Matthews or whoever else is on that line just waits for it to come out of there. He just does all the dirty work and I love it. Uh, But yeah, there's just, there's just more guys who are gruff, big, in your face, pesty, uh, and that's a huge difference for this Leafs team, and it's what they've been needing for a long time now. All right, that's about all the talking hockey I got. Yeah, same for me as well. Uh, and it looks like we got to wrap things up for today. Uh, I think we're going to have a, a bit of a COVID uh, in review perspective on Monday because there probably won't be that much to talk about over the weekend unless something big happens. But thank you. Uh, everyone for listening uh, wherever you are if you're down south and haven't been experiencing this recent snowstorm that I, I got here up in Ontario I gotta go shovel about a foot of snow out of my driveway now should be fun uh, yeah thank you for listening we appreciate you we hope you enjoy uh, share it wherever you can with your friends trying to build this following uh, and yeah Max take it away yeah thanks as Owen said for every download every listen we appreciate all the likes all the shares uh take care until next time sports next door signing off